Philippians chapter 1. We'll read the first 11 verses together. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent, in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. The Lord add His blessing to the reading of His word. Join me in prayer, won't you? Father, we bow before you this morning, our God and our King, Creator, one of inestimable worth. And Father, we wrestle to put thoughts together that are worthy of you, words together. It's not because of any defect in your person or character, but God, the the finiteness of our mind and the fickleness of our hearts. But God, we look away from self this morning and away from the world to you. And God, we find in you one who is altogether lovely, full of wisdom and grace. God, we thank you for the the wisdom and the grace that has put together salvation that has planned redemption and accomplished it. We thank you, Father, that you not only have made it as an offer, but God, you found rebels who wanted no part of it, and you bring us to yourself, conquering us by love and turning our hearts to see and to prize Jesus. God, we are truly debtors to mercy, and we bow before you with gratefulness this morning. Father, we pray for so many that we know and love who are far from you, who have not yet bowed to Christ Jesus. And God, we do ask that you would conquer their hearts. God, we pray that you would bring them to an end of themselves. We pray that every other created stream would prove to be dry to them a broken cistern. And God, may they find that Christ is indeed a fountain of living water and come and drink from Him freely. God, we think of others, Lord, a world of people that we we don't know, but God, who are lost without You. And we pray, Father, that the gospel would go forward and We think of missionaries that we know and love and support and the efforts that they are undertaking. God, others that we don't know that are laboring for the gospel. We pray, God, that you would lift high the cross of Christ and that he would be exalted and that many would come to faith. We think, God, of of our nation and um, decisions made that are contrary to holiness. We think of uh, the direction that we are going, God, and if left to our own devices or if our hope was in politics, surely, God, we would be hopeless. But we serve a king, and God, you do turn king's hearts in whichever direction you would turn them. We pray, God, that you would turn 
our nation. We pray, Father, that you would stir your own people to run to you in prayer and to repent and to, um, to, to look to you, to live unto you. God, we pray that you would work here. And God, where we have slowed down, that you would give us grace to pick up the pace that your loving discipline would be felt and that we would not be content to lag behind. Father, help us to love you with a fervent love and to follow you with a, a zealousness that, uh, that refuses to, to move along at a, a slow-dying rate. Father, you are our hope, but there is so much hope there. There is none like you. God, you've given us every reason to hope. Hope for today and tomorrow and for eternity, for ourselves, for our children, for a nation that is seeped in wickedness. God, if you would turn us, we would be turned. Come and help us. God, begin in us. Speak to us through your word and with power. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Philippians chapter 1. We began last Wednesday night looking at Philippians 1. We got through just the first verse, really as we considered Paul's introduction to the, the letter and uh, the recipients and all those kinds of good things. This morning, I want to look at verse 2, which is a very familiar verse. It's familiar because Paul uses these words so often. And because of the familiarity, it might be tempting to pass over them and think that they don't have much to say to us. But actually, I believe that they do. Philippians is a, a unique letter in so many ways. Many of Paul's letters are, are kind of neatly divided. You have several chapters of doctrine. Here's the theology. And then based on this truth that he sets forth, he lays out a very logical argument. And then he says, here's the practical aspect of that. Here's how you apply that. Philippians doesn't really do that. There's not this neat division. It's a very practical book. And because of that, because there's not that kind of division that you see in most of Paul's letters... There are some who think that it's kind of devoid of doctrine and it's just all practical. But I really think that's a bit of nonsense because I don't think that Paul says anything that isn't theological. Everything he says is doctrinal, even the practical. Everything he says derives from doctrinal truth. So it is a very practical book, but it's, it's, it's practical application that he draws straight from the truth that he's been preaching and throughout the book of Philippians it's kind of more intermingled than it is in his other letters. William Ames, who wrote a, a book on theology years ago, defined theology as the doctrine or the teaching of living to God, how to live to God. You might say that Paul knew that before William Ames did, and, and that's what he does here. Here's how to live to God, Philippians, in these circumstances that you find yourself in. And really what he does is he brings the gospel to bear. And that's what he does in all his letters, isn't it? Here's the truth of the gospel. And here's how you bring it to bear upon the circumstances that you find yourself in. So Paul has some things to say that are very practical. Not just for the Philippians. But because so much of what the Philippians were dealing with are the kinds of things that we find ourselves dealing with. It's very practical to us as well. So I hope that we can see a bit of that this morning as we look at the second verse. The second verse really is a continuation of his, his greeting to the Philippians. So in verse 1, he's, they begin their letters by saying, here's who's writing. Instead of doing like we do and waiting to the end of the letter, they begin. This is, you know, this is me, Paul, talking. And so he introduces himself and he says Timothy is with him. And he addresses the church there at Philippi. And in verse 2, there's the greeting to them. 
And with this greeting, one of the first things I'd like for you to notice is, you may not know this already, but it is a very common greeting. Not just common to Paul, but it was the common greeting of the day with a little bit of a twist. He takes it and he adapts it a bit, but it is the way that people would write in that day. It's not something completely new. So, uh, for instance, in Acts chapter 15... And verse 22, after the council of Jerusalem, the the apostles there put together a letter to go with Paul to other churches. And they write in Acts 15, verse 22 and 23, it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brethren, And they sent this letter by them, the apostles and the brethren who are elders, to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, who are from the Gentiles, greetings. And so here's who's writing. Here's who we're writing to. Greetings. We're we're sending this greeting to you. And Paul takes that common form. And again, he, he adapts it to his purpose and to the churches that he's writing to. But what I'm trying to get at here, I guess, is this. Paul doesn't think that because he's a Christian, he has to turn everything on its head just for the sake of turning everything on its head. So we are called to come out from among them and be separate. But that doesn't mean you have to be weird about everything. Paul doesn't take the common way that people wrote in his day and and completely change it. He doesn't say, you know, everyone else puts their name at the beginning, so we're going to put our name at the end. And everybody else starts with greeting. We're going to start with farewell. You know, he doesn't do that. He doesn't change things up just for the sake of changing them. He lives in a culture of people who, who write letters this way, and he writes letters like they write letters, making a few little changes, but nothing so startling that most people would look at it and think, Dude, you are really strange. If everything we do is is turned on its head just for the sake of being turned on its head, then people will look at us and just think they're really odd and perhaps just write us off as being oddballs. But if we, to the degree that we can, with a clear conscience before the Lord, live in the culture that we live in, and only change the things that must be changed for the glory of the gospel, then perhaps people will think, why do they make a why do they draw a line here? Why do they take a stand here? What's so important about this that they would change this when they, they don't change the other thing? Do you see what I mean? If everything's strange, then you're just strange. You're a kook. But if you change the things that you must change for the glory of the gospel, then maybe someone says, hey, why there and not over here? And you have the opportunity to say, because of this. So Paul doesn't make changes just for the sake of, of making changes. He doesn't uh, say, you know, just because I'm a Christian, I have to, to be odd here. He takes the way people write and he writes. It's the way it was done in his day. This greeting, as he writes it here, is a very common one for Paul. And here I'm saying that if you look at all the letters of Paul, every one of them begins pretty much the same way. In fact, these exact words show up in almost every one of his letters, with just a very few exceptions. And those are just slight variations. So not just the fact that he says, I'm Paul and I'm writing to you, but the fact that he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That, he says to almost everyone, that's his greeting to them. As he does that, because he does that, and because it's common not only for Paul, but common for his day, because it's familiar to us as you read through the New Testament and you see these words again and again, again, there's the possibility to, to think, well, he's, you know, this is just... Um, something you can skip over and not think too much about. You can kind of of be lulled to sleep by the familiarity of the words. But I don't think Paul's throwing words around lightly. The words are chosen for a purpose, and he is communicating something through them. And so 
We want to see what it is he has to say to us, how they're applicable to the Philippians and applicable to us. The words themselves, he begins with the word or or with the idea of grace to you. And this is the part where he takes a slight variation. The familiar greeting in his day would have been rejoice. That was the greeting, rejoice. And the Greek word for rejoice and the Greek word for grace are are very close. They're they're kind of cousins to each other. Just a slight variation in spelling. And so he takes this very familiar greeting, makes a slight adjustment to it. It would have sounded almost right, but just a little different. And he gives it uh, some theological depth that it didn't have otherwise. He exchanges it for grace. And with this exchange, he invokes the favor of God to be lavished as a free gift upon those who deserve condemnation. We are somewhat familiar with the idea of grace. Most of us, sometimes we get a little confused. Maybe some of the younger folks don't really understand what we're talking about when we say grace. But have any of you ever been to Legoland? Anybody? A few? Anybody want to go to Legoland? So imagine that, you know, summertime has come and you're given a list of things to do around the house. And you're told each week, you know, mom and dad are going to check this list. And if you have done those chores and you've done them well, it's going to be noted. And if you don't do them well, that's going to be noted as also. But at the end of the summer, if you've done those chores well all the way through the end of the summer, then there's this trip as a reward. You get to go to Legoland. And so week by week, you do your list of chores. You're all excited about Legoland. And you, you come and check this list. Maybe it's on the refrigerator. And you come and look at it every day. And you check off your list. And you make sure you do all those things. And mom and dad come around and they check. And sure enough, you're doing a good job. And at the end of the summer, they look. And each week, you've done those chores. You've done them very well. And they say, we're going to Legoland. That's great. But that's not grace. Okay? That's not grace. That was kind of the agreed upon bargain. You do this. And here's the reward for that. You do these chores and you work hard and here's what the reward is. We're going to Legoland. So you kept your end of the bargain. They're keeping their end of the bargain and that's not grace. That's great, but it's not grace. But imagine instead that you're given this list of chores and let's say it's for for eight weeks and for seven weeks you keep that list of chores really well and you work hard at it. On the seventh week, you blow it. I mean, it's terrible. You don't get anything done. And you're in trouble all week long. Maybe there are extenuating circumstances, right? But whatever it is, you don't get it done. And at the end of the week, your parents look and say, Phew. you know, for seven weeks you did pretty well. But this week, that's, that's awful. And you're expecting what? Phew, we're not going to Legoland. Because you know you didn't do it. And mom and dad say, we're going anyway. You did blow it this week. You didn't get the job done. You did well for seven weeks. You owe me a week, maybe. We're going to Legoland. And so they pack up and they take you to Legoland. Well, you didn't earn Legoland. The deal was eight weeks. And you only got seven. And what they showed you was grace. You don't deserve it. You didn't earn it. You didn't hold up your end of the deal. And they give you grace anyway. And they take you. God has given to people what they didn't deserve. We don't earn it. We haven't merited it. We haven't done such a great job that he looks and says, wow, y'all have worked hard. And so let me reward you with this. No, what we've earned is death and condemnation. But God has given us grace. He's, he provides salvation. And this grace that he gives us is not only an undeserved favor. We didn't deserve it. We got it. It's, it's also a forfeited favor. We had the favor of God in Adam and we lost it. By not just not getting the job done, by, but by 
transgressing the law of God, by offending the character of God, by trespassing. We, we've offended Him. And so it's more than just you failed to get all the chores done. You also have offended the lawmaker. But God in grace brings salvation. He's provided for salvation. It's because of the grace of God that Christ Jesus makes a wonderful exchange that Paul describes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. God made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. What a change. What an exchange. Innocent, perfect Christ takes on sin and bears the penalty of sin. He pays the debt and guilty us get His righteousness and we get the reward. God has provided for that in Christ. And Paul expresses something of both sides of this exchange here in the letter of Philippians. We see it in chapter 2 in verses 6, 7, and 8 where he says that of Christ, although He existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It was an obedience to the Father, but it was also as a substitute for you, for me, bearing my sin, my penalty, my debt, and then on the other side of that exchange, in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 9, Paul speaks of being found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Because of what Christ has done, this exchange is possible. And now I come to Him and I can be found in Him, with, not with my righteousness, but with His. An alien righteousness. One that doesn't belong to me by right or by nature. But He gives it to me. And the Father finds that acceptable because Christ has borne the penalty. So this exchange takes place. Have you ever made a bad trade? No? Okay, Henry. <laughs> Just give it some time. <laughs> uh, I, I remember as a child, and I've seen my own kids do it, come home with stuff that, you know, that they've traded. They've met someone at school or church or somebody, and they've made this trade. And you look at it and you think, what did you do? Maybe they took something that was of some value and they traded it to somebody for, you know, a piece of gum or something. And you think, have you lost your mind? Uh, and it's a bad trade. You get a little bit older maybe and you start to realize what things are worth and you make a trade and you get home and maybe what you thought you got proved hey, it wasn't that. What was supposed to work didn't work. What was said to be worth this, you find it really wasn't worth that at all. And you realize maybe you got taken advantage of. You got took. Maybe you've been on the other end of that. And what you received turned out to be worth so much more than you expected and maybe you feel bad for the other person, but maybe you just think, hey, score, you know, I, I did well this time and I really moved up. Here's an exchange that, that by all human calculations is not right. Our sin on him and his righteousness on us. But you have to understand, he's not being taken advantage of. It's not like we pulled the wool over his eyes. It's not as if we took him. No, it's the grace of God that has provided for something we didn't deserve. And we should wake up in wonder every day at the, at the exchange, at the trade. We got the better end of the deal. But it's because he freely gave it. It's a wonder. And so Paul speaks of this grace 
that God has provided this, this trade, the, the condemned, the innocent condemned and punished, and we the guilty declared right in the sight of God. Most of us have some idea of what this grace is. We talk about it, but I'm astonished at those who still think wrong thoughts about grace. There are some who still think, perhaps, that they're not good enough for grace, as if you have to earn it. Or maybe they're so bad, they don't think that grace is sufficient for them. And it's really not a humility that says I'm that bad. It's really a pride that, that questions whether God's good enough or, or that, that you know, paints the gospel as something that it's not. It's not really humility, though, that says I'm that bad. It's not overvaluing your sin so much as it is devaluing Christ and His righteousness. But then, perhaps even more shocking, are those who still think they are good enough. And they don't think they need the cross of Christ because they look at themselves and they think, really, I've got it all together. I'm a pretty good person. And by whatever definition of goodness they have, have put together for themselves, they think they meet the criteria and God must be okay with them. But hear this. There are no private agreements with God. There are no private arrangements. God has given us the... the requirements in his gospel he spelled it out for us and there's no other way to God except by Christ Jesus there's only one mediator between God and men the man Christ Jesus and if you're not coming to him by Christ Jesus then you're not getting to him you're still lost and undone so humble yourself and come to him by the way that he has provided Humble yourself and see that Christ has provided a righteousness that is more than enough to meet the need that you have. It's the one that the Father Himself demands. It's the only thing with which He'll be satisfied. Anything else is not enough. Anything else is an offense. It's like coming to someone to whom you owe an enormous debt and bringing monopoly money. You, you've printed the money off on your own printer at home and it's obvious, it's counterfeit. And you're saying, here, I've come to pay the debt. No one is going to be thrilled about that. No one is going to say, that's good, it's enough. So Paul begins by speaking of grace. He moves on from there to peace. I mentioned that grace is a variation on the common Greek greeting, and it is. Peace, however, is a very Hebrew greeting. In Hebrew, it is shalom. Paul uses a Greek word here that is found in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And it's one that, uh, kind of like greetings or, or rejoice, in the Old Testament was often used as both hello and goodbye. Peace. Shalom. We see a, a couple of examples of this in the book of Ezra as they write letters back to the king. In Ezra 4.17, the king sent an answer to Reham, the commander, to Shimshai, the scribe, and to the rest of their colleagues who live in Samaria and in the rest of the provinces beyond the river. Here's how the, the letter begins. Peace. You see it again in chapter 5 and verse 7. Peace. It's the greeting. Because it's used as a greeting, it would be easy, I assume, to just kind of start passing right over that word if you've got a letter like that. Have you ever received a letter and it's closed sincerely, name inserted, you know, sincerely? Do you ever stop and think, oh, let me reread the letter because it's, they, read, they wrote it sincerely, you know. Well, you, you don't. And I'm sure there are plenty of people who picked up letters or heard hello, goodbye, peace, peace, who didn't think they really mean me well. You know, it's what you said. It's like, hello, goodbye, peace, peace. In secular Greek, peace was the antithesis of war or the cessation of war. We have peace. We're not at war. But 
Is that all that Paul means when he says peace? Is he just, again, throwing out a word? Or does he just mean, no, no war right now, we're, we're not fighting? Well, no. In fact, he's writing to the church militant. We could say that they're very involved in the fight, and he himself is in prison. So I don't think he means that. What does he mean then? In the Old Testament, the concept of peace was one of a general sense of well-being that covered every aspect of life. So spiritual well-being, physical well-being, material well-being. To wish someone peace was to wish that they were well in all of those areas. And ultimately, the only way to really be well in all of those areas was to be walking with God, to know Him. So this well-being is often linked with righteousness. In Isaiah 48, verse 18, God said, If only you had paid attention to my commandments, then your well-being, your peace, your shalom, then your well-being would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. In Psalm 85, verse 10, the psalmist writes, Loving kindness and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. In Christ, righteousness and peace have come together. And it's as if they've kissed. They're in agreement. As Paul writes this greeting, the order is important. Grace to you and peace. Peace, real peace, this kind of peace is the fruit of grace. How can anyone have a a, a full sense of well-being apart from the blessing of God? Apart from living in light of the grace of God. How can you have a a sense of well-being if all is not right with your soul? And so peace is an integral component in the content and in the goal of preaching. So much so that the Bible speaks of the gospel of peace. In Acts 10.36, the Bible speaks of the word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2.17, quoting the Old Testament and speaking of Christ, it says, He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. Ephesians 6.15, there in that uh, section on the, the weapons of our warfare and fitting yourself with the armor of God, it says that you're to have your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In Isaiah 52.7, the Bible says, How lovely on the mountains... Are the feet of him who brings good news. Who announces peace. It is the grace of God that provides for real peace. And more than that, God's grace makes reconciliation a reality. Securing our place in the heart of God. Peace with God is is not a reality without the grace of God. If, If God doesn't show us grace... Through Christ, bringing us to Himself and and, and making reconciliation possible, there's no way we can have peace with God. We're on the outs. Our sin is offensive to God. It's antagonistic. And it has created a chasm between us and God that we cannot get across. And this great divide will not disappear simply by our pretending it does not exist. You can't just, you know, imagine or think positive thoughts 
and that go away. You can't ignore it. Doesn't work with human relationships either, does it? I mean, love does cover a multitude of sin, but sometimes there are real hurts that are deep, must be dealt with. And when those hurts are deep like that, you can't just say, look, let's just forget it and move on. Well, that doesn't help anything. You can't pretend it didn't happen. Have you ever found any relationship to be restored by acting like it didn't happen? The hurt must be acknowledged. The pain must be dealt with. And that comes at a price. The person who caused the hurt pays the price of humbling himself and owning the hurt caused. The person who has been hurt pays a price. There's the price of forgiving and not holding a grudge. Not holding on to that to, to beat somebody with next time you get hurt. In our offense with God, the wonder of the gospel is that the one who was offended is the one who makes provision to bring us back to himself. If I hurt you, if I steal from you, if I do something wrong to you, I'm supposed to be, I'm the one that has to make restitution. I'm the one that has to make that right. But in our offense against God, He doesn't tell us, now you fix it. You make restitution. You can't. We, we've recently seen it as we looked at the trespass offering. There, you brought an expensive offering, a sacrifice. You made restitution. You paid an additional 20%. It was costly. But God is the one Himself who sends the sacrifice. He's the one who makes the restitution. And He makes it possible for you to be reconciled to Him. Paul reminded the Ephesian Christians that Jesus is the one who has brought real peace and that the price of that peace was his death. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 14, Paul says, He himself is our peace. It's not something outside of him that he's provided. He himself is our peace. And in verse 16, he has worked so that he might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by having put to death the, in, the enmity. Christ has put to death the enmity. He's the one who reconciles us to each other and to God. So grace to you. And peace. And the order is important. The source is important as well. We've already hit on this a bit, but let me just say a little bit more. Paul says, grace to you and peace from God our Father. And the Lord Jesus Christ. First, God our Father. In the Old Testament, God is spoken of as a father, but it's primarily as the father of the nation of Israel. It's this, this nation, these people. It's not so much the individual. But Jesus comes and you hear Him praying, Father, Father. And He teaches us to pray, Our Father in heaven. And it's this God, the God that we know as Father, who has adopted us into His own family, who owns us as His own. My child. It's this God who is providing the grace and peace that we need. But not just God, our Father, but also the Lord Jesus Christ. The word Jesus is the, if you will, the human name of our Lord, of the second person of the Godhead. It's the name given to Him at His birth. The angel said, call Him Jesus. He'll save His people from their sin. And so it, it reminds us of that. This is who we're talking about. The one who comes in the incarnation and puts on flesh and, and saves His people. And then the word Christ... You know, the word Christ is, is the equivalent of the Old Testament Messiah. And until you get to the epistles, it's almost used exclusively as a title. 
In the Gospels, often he is Jesus the Christ. He is the Christ. But in the epistles, he's Jesus Christ. (laughs) But the idea, the emphasis is on his work as mediator. This is the one who has come, the Messiah, to atone for his people and to to save his people, to to be the, the one who brings them to God. And this one is the Lord. He's the one we bow to. He's the one we obey. He is the master. And this would have carried probably even more weight in the day of the Philippians. Uh, the book is written to them. The letter is written to them. I mentioned Wednesday night. The city of Philippi was a Roman colony. And Paul writes in a day when people would have spoken of the Lord Caesar. The Lord Caesar. And while that's being spoken around town, you have this group of saints in Philippi who are speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul writes from a Roman prison, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not the Lord Caesar who's providing you grace or peace. It's the Lord Jesus Christ who provides grace and peace. And then by putting them together... God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is very clearly saying these two are are one. Christ is equal with the Father. The source of your grace and peace are are these two persons of the Godhead. It's God the Father, God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not some comes from God and some comes from Jesus. Or some days you get it here and some days you get it over there depending on who's got... Some supply. No, both of these persons are God. And it's a clear statement about the deity of Christ. This grace and peace belong to those who approach God as Father by way of His Son, bowing to the Lord Jesus. There's no other way. And when you are a recipient of this grace and the resulting peace, you'll find not only forgiveness, but also transformation. It's not that you're instantly made perfect. It's not that, that everything is, is automatically okay, you know, that, that everything in you is fixed, or everything around you is fixed. But the direction of your life and the affection of your hearts is changed, and it is being changed. Changed so that you can never be satisfied with pursuing selfish interest any longer. Never be satisfied with primarily being concerned with your reputation over the reputation of Christ any longer. Your heart's delight will now be fixed in another. The Lord Jesus Christ. And so you want His interest. You are concerned about His reputation. So much so that as we saw Wednesday night, acknowledging yourself as his slave is a joyful admission. The writers of the Heidelberg Catechism recognize that, stating that the Christian's only comfort in life or death is that I am not my own, but belong body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. It is our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, along with God the Father, who provides grace and peace. As Paul writes this greeting in verse 2 of Philippians 1, it's more than a wish. Paul isn't saying, you know, I I wish grace and peace for you. I, I don't have any, but I wish you had some. It's not just best wishes or my desire. It's not empty talk. More than the customary greeting we've already said. But Paul speaks as God's authorized and inspired spokesman. As a holy man of God being moved, he writes, Grace to you and peace. Paul writes as one with authority and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. 
But also, as Paul writes these words, he's asking, or, or if you want to say wishing, I don't know or to put in his place. He, he wants for them what God's already provided for them. It's not as if he is saying, I, I want this for you, but there's no provision. You might think of um, parents who, who've saved for their kids' education and they put up some money for a college fund but their child applies to all these big name schools and comes home one day and there's a letter, acceptance letter. And this letter isn't for some state school, you know, that you've kind of got covered. This letter is for this school that there's no way. <laughs> there is no way. And you're excited. At the same time, you, you don't want to say like, sorry, <laughs> you can't go because I hadn't got it. But you don't. There's no provision. That's not what Paul's doing. Paul wants for them what God himself has already provided for. God has already sent Christ. Christ has already died. The provision is made. God's already supplied grace and the peace that flows from that. And so Paul wants for them what they, in a sense, already have. He wants more of it for them. In fact, when Paul writes and says that he wants grace and peace for them, what does he mean? Does he mean that they need to be saved? Is he praying for their salvation? Grace and peace? If only you knew God, if you had grace, then you could know peace. Well, he doesn't mean that. Verse 1, he writes to the saints who are in Philippi. He's writing to Christians who've already received grace and peace. So what does he mean, Philippians, grace and peace to you? He's not writing in a vacuum. In fact, he writes very much to a people like us. Paul writes to a people who are tempted to pursue their own interest at the expense of others. And ultimately at the expense of the gospel. And so he writes in chapter 2 and verse 13. And that's not right. Verse 3. I can't read my own writing. Philippians 2 and verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Okay, but how do you do that, Paul? Well, you're going to need grace and peace. Got to have it. Paul writes to a people who are facing false teachers and who will face false teachers. There's the threat of, of Judaizers who follow Paul from church to church and say the gospel is great. But added to that gospel, you also need to follow these Old Testament religious uh, rituals. And if you would add that to the gospel, you'd really have something. And they plague Paul. They follow him from town to town as he establishes churches and they seek to disrupt the church. And then there are others who have other ideas. There's, there's a, a Gnosticism beginning that, that has a different view of Christ and comes around and it sounds very knowledgeable and it sounds fascinating and people are being lured away from Christ to these other ideas. And that's on the horizon. Already, Paul writes in chapter 3 and verse 18. And he says, Many walk of whom I often told you, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Don't follow them. Don't follow their example. They're enemies. You don't need to follow them. How are you going to avoid it? How are you going to distinguish one from the other? How are you going to stay on the right path? Well, you're going to need grace and peace. Paul writes to a people who are and will be confronted with an overreaching state. They've already seen it. Ten years before in Acts chapter 16, as Paul is 
there and the church is being established. You remember there was a, a, a possessed girl following them around and, and interrupting. And finally Paul turns to her and casts the demon out. And in Acts chapter 16 verse 19, when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they really cared about her, right? Their hope of profit was gone. They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, These men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs which is not lawful for us to accept or to observe, being Romans. And so they, they throw them into prison. You remember they're in prison overnight singing praises. And we see the Philippian jailer come to Christ as, as their chains are released. Not only Paul and Silas's, but everybody's. And the man is sure that everyone's escaped. And he's about to kill himself. And Paul tells him to wait. Everyone's still there. And so the Philippian jailer and his household believe. And they are converted. But then in verse 35. Now when day came... The chief magistrates sent their policemen saying, release those men. And the jailer reported those words to Paul saying, the chief magistrates have sent to release you. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us in public without trial. Men who are Romans and have thrown us into prison. And now are they sending us away secretly? No, indeed. But let them come themselves and bring us out. What was he saying? I'm a citizen. You know, they, they've stepped over the lines of the Constitution. Here's an overreaching state, and, and they've endured that. Paul writes Philippians probably around 61, 62 A.D. What happens in 64? Rome burns. Who gets blamed? The Christians. They have faced an overreaching state. They're going to face an overreaching state. What do you do, Philippians? Even now, Paul's in jail. He's in prison waiting the verdict. What do you do? Well, you're going to need grace and peace. Not necessarily peace with the state, but peace with God that gives peace with self, that strives to be at peace with all men. Paul writes to a people who are tempted to be weighed down with cares. They know that Paul's in prison. He's been there long enough that they've heard about it. They're concerned for him. They love him. He loves them. They send to him a man named Epaphroditus to go and care for Paul, to take him a care package. Paul writes about it in Rome, pardon, Philippians chapter 3, verse 25. And there is no 25, is there? Chapter 2. That's what happens when my fingers go faster than my, my brain. Philippians 2.25. But I thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need. He, he, they have sent him for the purpose of caring for Paul. They're concerned about him. And why wouldn't they be? What's going to happen to Paul? They could well ask the next question. What's going to happen to us? They're not only concerned for, uh, for Paul, they're concerned for Epaphroditus. When he arrives, he gets deathly ill. And enough time has passed again that they've heard about the fact that Epaphroditus is very sick. And they're concerned, is Epaphroditus going to live or not? And so you keep reading there in chapter 2, verse 26. Because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick to the point of death. But God had mercy on him. And not on him only but also on me. So that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. What I'm saying is they're concerned about the same kinds of things you and I are concerned about. Paul's in prison. Epaphroditus is deathly ill. And these things concern them. How do, you, how do you meet each of those? How do you reckon with it? Well, you're going to need the grace of God. and You're going to need the peace of God. Paul is not just throwing out words. Here is what you need, Philippians. You've, you've already received it, but you need to live upon it. And you need to, to apprehend more of it. It needs to have more of you. You need to live in the grace of God. 
and know the peace of God. And so it's to Christians enduring these kinds of problems as well as others that he writes these words. So not a well wish. But neither is it shallow counsel. So much of what passes for wisdom is shallow counsel. It's, it's light words, trite words that really don't affect much. Maybe it attempts to deal with symptoms, but not really with the root. Maybe it just tries to make you feel better about the whole situation. The situation is terrible. Maybe you can feel a little bit better about the situation. You, you try to dress it up and pretend it's not as bad as it really is. When really, it, it's bad. And Paul's not saying it's not bad. He's saying there's a God who gives grace and can give you peace even when it's bad. So Paul's not doing that. He's not trying to put a positive spin on it. He's not uh, kind of a new favorite saying here. He's not trying to put lipstick on a pig. Can you imagine? It's still a pig. (laughs) The lipstick didn't change it. That's not what Paul's doing. The Bible is giving a sound counsel. It's telling us what we need to hear in the face of these kinds of problems, these kinds of temptations. It's the application of the gospel. And we should know this. And, and we do. But we're tempted to look for the answer elsewhere. If only those people I have to deal with were different people or they'd go away. <laughs> or if only the circumstances I'm having to deal with. If I could get out of that. If I could change jobs or if I could change this or change that. If, if that was different, life would be so much easier. And you know what? It might be easier. I mean, it might be. Paul could say, if I wasn't in prison, it'd be better. And in some ways it would, wouldn't it? But, is that the goal? Just easy life. The Bible insists that that is not the ultimate answer. Paul points us to the answer. If you would know peace, you must live upon grace. God in His providence allows us to face all of these kinds of problems and others. Why? Some of it is for our own good. We need grace and we need to see that we need grace so that we don't trust ourselves. We are to walk by faith. But sometimes if we're not put in a position where we must walk by faith, we don't do so well at that. I think it was Samuel Rutherford who who spoke of of boats on a calm sea, how all the boats look pretty good. But when the storm comes, then you see which boats are really seaworthy. You see which ones are in good shape and which ones are bad shape. And, And so storms come and we see where we need work. We see where we're trusting God and where we're not. But it's not just for our sake. It's also for the glory of God and the good of others. Our dependence on God in hard times demonstrates the goodness of God in a way that might not be seen in the worst in the best of times if life is easy and, and you're happy what does that say who, who isn't happy when life is easy but if like Paul you're in prison and you're happy that says something different as Christians we are called to live to the glory of God, to live according to this this book, this Bible, according to this little letter to the Philippians. We're called to manifest the kind of life depicted here, the kind of life that Paul depicts. That's for every Christian, not just the Philippians. And it was for Paul. What does Paul's life say about God? Paul, who is in chains for the gospel. Paul, who had already endured so much. Paul, who even now was concerned for the Philippian church and other churches. Paul, who himself so recently had been concerned about Epaphroditus. He speaks about his own sorrow that he would have felt if Epaphroditus had died and how God spared him. 
Did Paul live upon grace? Yes. Did Paul enjoy peace? Or is his life in shambles? Well, he writes in verse 12 of Philippians 1. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances... What circumstances? My chains have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. In verse 15, he says, Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. And then in verse 18, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. Philippians 3, verses 7 and 8. Paul says, Whatever things were gained to me in the old life, the stuff I used to really think was good and worth having, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ. Does it sound like Paul's given up? Or that he's down in the dumps? Is, is Paul sitting around gazing at his own navel and saying, Lord, where are you? Do I even know you, God? No. In Philippians 4, verse 4, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, Rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's Paul's words, his command to the Philippian. Is Paul saying, hey, have you ever heard this? You do what I say, not what I do. Is that what Paul's saying? You say, you do what I say, not what I do. You rejoice. I'm over here moping, but you rejoice. Well, no. Is Paul failing to practice what he preaches? No. Rejoice in the Lord always. What's Paul doing? He better be rejoicing. He is living in the grace of God. He knows the peace of God even from prison. In Philippians 4 verse 10, concerning the way that the Philippians have stepped up to care for him. He says, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have received, pardon me, you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry. He, he may have very well been hungry before the gift from the Philippians arrived. They've revived their concern from him. They, they've sent and ministered to his need. So what does Paul's life say about God? What does your life say about God? Paul writes from the well of experience. What you need is the grace and peace that comes from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He has provided it. Now live upon it. And Paul is confident of this. He's confident as he calls us to follow him through these difficulties. From prison, he writes in Philippians 3.17... Brethren, join in following my example. Follow me from prison. And observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Every other pattern is faulty. But here's one you can follow. So... 
Stop running back to old patterns. Stop running back to old habits. We find ourselves under stress. Do you ever stress eat? <laughs> or maybe you, you um, binge watch TV. You know, we, we, we have whatever method to try to deal with the stress. To try to deal with the problem and pretend that reality isn't reality. And Paul doesn't say anesthetize it, you know, cover it up, pretend it doesn't, it isn't real. Paul looks it face on and says, here's God. Hear the chains. Rejoice. Humble yourself before the Lord. Run to the mercy seat. Live in light of grace. Walk in obedience. Know and rejoice in peace with God. Peace with yourself. I'll read a doxology from Jude's letter and then we will sit for just a moment of silence. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling... And to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy. To the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.